0: Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podlin. This week, Washington gets a new Secretary of State as Kim Wyman heads to D.C. to join the Biden administration. Plus, legendary Washington Post reporter Dan Balls on the president's sinking poll numbers. And what exactly happened with the Washington State Redistricting Commission, which failed to meet its deadline? And a quick programming note, you might notice some audio changes in this episode, as various segments were taped in Seattle, a hotel room in Washington, D.C., and the ABC News headquarters just north of the White House. But first, since 2013, Kim Wyman has been serving as Washington's Secretary of State, and in that time, even though she's a Republican... She developed a reputation as being a neutral arbiter of elections beholden to no party. But now, after the 2020 election and other issues that have come up and opportunities, she is headed to Washington, D.C. She joins me now uh, from her office in Olympia, Washington. And uh, first off, congratulations on the new job.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And uh, the next quite natural question is, what exactly will you be doing in D.C.?
1: Well, I I will be working for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, and uh, my job will be, uh, the official title is Senior Election Security Lead, and basically my role will be to try to uh, help election officials across the country work with some of the best cybersecurity minds in the country to secure our nation's election system, so I'm going to be sort of a liaison translator, helping the two worlds uh, to help each other.
0: You say this is cybersecurity, so you're talking mostly hacking of systems, not these fraudulent ballots that a lot of people have uh, accused uh, people of.
1: It, it's a combination of things. You know, the, the, probably high profile part is really uh, securing the, the cyber side of our election systems, the infrastructure side, you know, the hardware and, and the connections of those, but also managing and, and trying to combat the misinformation and disinformation campaigns that we have certainly seen uh, proliferate the, uh, you know, post-election space uh, since the 2020 election and really going back to 2016. So it's, it's all of those fronts uh, we're fighting every day. How
0: bad is that misinformation uh, campaign that's going on out there?
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty significant. It, uh, you know, it, it operates on multiple fronts and multi- multiple levels from foreign actors putting, you know, bot farms together and, and really trying to spread misinformation that sounds like it's coming from other Americans to people right here at home, people right here in the state who believe that our election system is rigged and that the outcomes are not legitimate. So it's uh, it's something every American should be concerned about because it is uh, undermining people. People's confidence in our elections.
0: That issue of legitimacy of the elections, whether it be through accusations of voter fraud, as we've talked about in the past, there's there's fraud in every election, whether it's not it's widespread is another story. And there's been absolutely no evidence of that. Is this something when you got into managing elections that you ever thought would take up a a good portion of your job?
1: Well, it's something that election officials have always been aware of. I think if you go back to the 1960s and President Johnson's election, uh, you know, there's all sorts of stories of ballot box stuffing. And and certainly we have a history also of, you know, uh, voter suppression. So I think fraud and suppression are two things that have always been part of American uh, elections and politics historically. And so in the modern era, election administrators really work to try to be very transparent and show people how we secure their ballot and how we make that process accessible. Um, But I think that what we've seen really in the last five, six years is on another level because of social media. So some of the conspiracy theories and and some of the rhetoric that has always been spread about elections and the other side cheating now has, you know, a a megaphone that we didn't have five years ago, 10 years ago that uh, legitimizes those messages and I think really Uh, causes people to doubt our election system.
0: So how do you combat that both as Secretary of State and in your new role with the Biden administration?
1: Uh, Well, you know, I I think it's, again, working with our local election partners, uh, and now it'll be on a national level, but clerks and auditors across the country uh, really showing their local communities how they secure their elections, how they make them accessible, how they do the day-to-day election administration. I think that's one of the most powerful tools all of us have, because... um, that, that's where you can really instill confidence and inspire confidence in your local voters. And they go on to talk to their neighbors and their family members, and that helps. But um, it, it is going to be a partnership with uh, with multiple agencies and organizations to, to try to combat the misinformation that's spread online. Uh, we're, we'll be working with social media companies. We'll be working with, uh, like I said, election officials and cybersecurity officials. But it's, it's really been an ongoing fight going back to the 2016 election um, and, uh, you know, the the bad actors uh, just find new ways of spreading that information and and we've got to find new ways to combat it.
0: Looking back on your years as Secretary of State here in Washington, what are you most proud of?
1: You know, I, I think first and foremost, the team that we were able to assemble in the Secretary of State's office, we built upon a great team when I arrived in 2013 and really fine-tuned it. And, and we were able to do some pretty monumental tasks like modernizing our election system, not only here in this office, but in the 39 counties across the state that allowed us to have a real-time voter registration and election management system that allowed us to implement same-day voter registration Automatic voter registration and, uh, and the future voter program to have that great accessibility and really good solid security. Um, we've modernized our corporations and charities division by, uh, you know, making it much more accessible and modern for, uh, all sorts of entities to file online and be able to get information, uh, to us that that's required in a much easier way than driving to Olympia to file paperwork. Um, we have expanded our coverage of, um, and accessibility to our records, like uh, putting over 100 million records online for the digital archives to uh, our Legacy Washington program that's telling the stories of Washingtonians and our state's history in a way that uh, that is just really accessible to students and adults. And, you know, I, I think all of those things are, uh, you know, just monumental tasks in and of themselves. The one thing I didn't get to finish was the Library Archives building. Uh, we're right now in getting ready ready to do construction level drawings and, and bidding the project, uh, hoping to have that, that building open in 2024. So I definitely want to be back for that. But, uh, but it's well on its way. And I think that it's going to be a real step forward in securing and, and preserving our state's history. So a lot to be proud of. And it's, it's all due to a great team.
0: A lot of what you mentioned has to do with you know, online access, whether it's through you know the, the ballots or, or voter registration or through corporation records state records, that sort of thing, which is kind of seems to be right up your alley because that's what you're going to be doing in the new job. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I hope so. I, I think that, uh, you know, the hard part about leaving before my term is over is not getting to complete the, the promises I made on the campaign trail. But, uh, you know, when I look back at the nine years as secretary of state and the 20 years at the county auditor's office, um, all of that support I got through the years really gave me the foundation for this job. And I'm I'm really ready and uniquely qualified for the position. And, and I think I can really help uh, this amazing cybersecurity team and election officials across the country do their job, and that all comes back to uh, the people that have supported me through the years. So it's it's bittersweet, but it's exciting to think about.
0: We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, more of our conversation with outgoing Secretary of State Kim Wyman when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogola. My guest right now is Secretary of State Kim Wyman, who is leaving her office to take a job with the Biden administration. But as for the position being vacated... Senator Steve Hobbs is going to be taking over the job, at least temporarily, until a special election can be held. Uh, You had some praise for him in the news release that was sent out uh, last week. Uh, What do you think of him taking over the job?
1: Oh, I I think he is ready to uh, hit the ground running. He's got a very steep learning curve in front of him and he'll find that out soon enough, but you know, his military career and leadership in the national guard is going to give him that foundation to lead a, you know, a staff of 300 across the state. And, uh, he's going to have a real good foundation with cybersecurity and it background that he has. So, uh, and I know he has some uh, misinformation and disinformation, uh, the ability to combat that also in his job. So I think he comes in with some good foundational elements. Uh, he's going to have to learn elections and, and how you administer an election. And that's that's going to take time. But uh, but I feel very confident he's going to walk in the door doing really well.
0: He's a Democrat. The, your job has been held by Republicans for decades. It's a bit of a change. And uh, the Republican Party's not too happy with you for leaving the state.
1: Uh, yeah, yes, there are certainly some folks that uh, that are not happy and some that probably feel vindicated because I'm leaving for a Democratic administration. But, uh, you know, I think that the reason Republicans have held this office for as long as we have has a lot to do with the way my predecessors and I have operated the office that, you know, nonpartisan manner and that that ability to make sure every Washingtonians vote is protected goes a long way. And um, I would hope that future secretaries of state learn from that regardless of their party, and that they they realize that what's important is being nonpartisan in, in their actions and deeds and how they, they operate and lead this office. And, and I'm hopeful that uh, that will continue long into the future.
0: From the purely political standpoint, you leave as Secretary of State, a Democrat comes in, and you're heading to work for a Democratic administration. Are you still a Republican?
1: <laughs> well, 40 years ago, uh, Ronald Reagan inspired me with his uh, talk about, you know, principles, what Republican principles were. Um, you know, it inspired me so much to become a Republican in 1980. And I've never looked back because I believe in those core principles of, you know, smaller government and the rule of law and uh, that people prosper and, and and have prosperity in their lives when taxes are lower and government intervention is out of them. And you know, those are the things I hope that the Republican Party goes back to. Um, in my my role that I'll be undertaking, it's really important that I'm nonpartisan in how I do my job. Uh, my husband and I will be moving to the East Coast. And uh, when I register to vote, I will register as an independent, uh, mostly because you, you want to make sure that uh, you don't have the appearance of, of partisanship in this role, even though people are going to know I was a Republican. I think what's important is how I do the job. So I've learned a lot in the, the 20 years I've been in elected office and, and run elections. So I think that'll serve me well in the new role. But uh, the Republican Party is going to have to function uh, without me in a, uh, an elected office for a while, I suppose.
0: You mentioned you've learned a lot. What was the biggest thing that you've learned as secretary of state?
1: You know, I, I think the most important thing for the the person who sits in this chair is you have to have that ability to be calm in the storm and when things are going wrong or mistakes have been made and people start downing our election system, you have to be able to to sit here and inspire and instill confidence in in the public that our elections are secure, our elections are accessible and they're fair. And, uh, and you know, there's a lot of ways you do that. But the most important thing is temperament. And uh, and I hope that, you know, the future secretaries of state can bring that to the, to this office because I think Washington voters and and the public expect it.
0: What's the one thing that you want voters and the citizens of Washington to remember you for?
1: Uh, You know, I I think it would be that I was part of building this system that I'm very proud of, uh, where I think a lot of uh, voters take for granted that we have a very accessible system with vote by mail and uh, and all of the, you know, uh, features like same day voter registration. But we also have the security measures built in place to ensure that even if a voter gets more than one ballot, only one's counted. And all of that was decades in the making. And it was partnerships with county election officials, county auditors, secretaries of state and and the legislature to build build out the system that we have. And, and I'm proud to have been a part of that and, and had the opportunity to lead it for a few years. But um, I, I think when people look back at, at Washington's system, you know, you really get a sense of how far out in front of the country that we are in terms of, of those benchmarks of accessibility and security. And uh, and that's really what's driven me to run for office at the county level and at the state level is really um, serving Uh, serving the citizens of each of those jurisdictions, and more importantly, uh, protecting that system from partisanship and and really making sure it was, um, you know, almost apolitical in the way that we did our duties. So um, there's a lot to be proud of and just some great people that I've gotten to work with through the years that made it happen.
0: On a personal level, how is this shift from one coast to the other going to change your lifestyle?
1: Oh, I think pretty significantly. Um, my husband and I are empty nesters. We have been since December of last year. And so uh, this is a new phase of, of, of life on that front. And, uh, you know, moving to D.C., this job is going to be um, very much a traveling job. So I'm going to spend a lot of the year on the road going to different states and working with their state and local election officials to try to secure their system. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, never lived on the East Coast before. So that that will be new, too. But looking forward to being in the nation's capital and getting to see the history firsthand and, you know, going and visiting places like Gettysburg and, uh, you know, Mount Vernon and places I've never been before and and getting to see it is is pretty exciting.
0: Finally, what message do you want to send to voters and the citizens of Washington as you leave office?
1: Uh, Well, you know, thank you for your support through the years and preparing me for this next step the uh, the country really does uh, have some big challenges in front of it and certainly in the area of, area of elections. And because of your support, because of the um, experiences I've had serving as secretary of state and county auditor, I think I'm I'm ready and uniquely positioned to, to be able to take on those challenges and really help our country um, move forward. And, you know, this job, while I know most people look at it as a political appointment, which it is, um, this is about service. And this is a, a true call to duty to try to help make sure our nation's election system is secured and that people believe in it and that uh, our represent representational government uh, continues to prosper long into the future. So um, I'm you know, excited about this opportunity to serve. It's what's driven me for the uh, the 40 years I've been in the public sector. And um, it's an honor to be able to serve at a national level and represent uh, all of you in Washington, D.C. So uh, I thank you for the, the years that you've been behind me and allowed me to do this work.
0: All right, Kim Wyman, outgoing secretary of state for the state of Washington. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeff. All right, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with more on the Kumo Politicast in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pose. A bit of drama this past week when it comes to congressional maps. Now, you never thought cartography would get all that political, but it seems to have this time around. Uh, at the last hour, it appears there was a deal uh, to reach a deal reached amongst the Washington State Redistricting Commission, which, by the way, includes two Republicans and two Democrats. But then at the last minute, it looks like someone may have backed out. The deadline was missed. And now, The courts are going to handle drawing the maps. However, the Redistricting Commission has submitted agreed-upon maps anyway, even though it was post-deadline. the So a lot to unpack here. Sarah Augustine is the non-voting chair of the Washington Redistricting Commission. She joins us now. So what exactly happened in those last hours?
2: So um, at the end of of Monday, our plan originally or our intention originally at our regularly scheduled meeting, business meeting um, on the 15th, was to adopt plans um, within that meeting. Um, Unfortunately, when 7 o'clock rolled around, commissioners were still working on their final plan. And and although they were able to reach agreement uh, by our statutory deadline, which is midnight, um, they were out of time to actually draft uh, the final intention by submitting it technologically. So part of the issue here is that the decision makers, the commissioners, who are appointed by um, the caucuses in the legislature are not the ones who are actually uh, drawing the maps. Um, those, uh, the, that path is accomplished by staff. So each of the four voting commissioners uh, has caucus staff, staff that, that their caucus has provided to them who are handling the technology piece. So if, if they had um, come to agreement earlier in that day, it's uh, then we would have been able to submit the plan. So from my point of view, Jeff, they came to consensus on a final plan and ran out of time to, to do the final technological task.
0: There was talk that someone had backed out of a deal at the 11th hour. You're saying that's not the case.
2: I'm saying that, um, that as the chair, it was my job to write the, uh, the the meeting agenda. We moved through that agenda. Um, we moved through in that agenda the opportunity to vote on um, the the entire package that is the redistricting plan for the state of Washington, and we had consensus to um, to move forward with that plan. So Jeff, um, it's not the case that that anybody backed out. That that I heard um, as the convener of the meeting, I can tell you that that agreement was reached and signed um, by the statutory deadline. I also would just point out that by statute, only three Mm -hmm. votes are required for a map. However, the agreement was by consensus.
0: Mm -hmm. But with the nature of it needing a majority, not necessarily unanimous, you have two Republicans and two Democrats on this commission, inevitably, one party is gonna have to concede to another in order to come to an agreement here. How did that play out?
2: The pathway that the voting commissioners undertook in their negotiation was to have bipartisan pairs. There was a house team and a Senate team and they negotiated with the same partner consistently over many weeks of time. So I think that um, there was quite a lot of give and take on both sides, um, district by district. I don't think that it was one team, one member of a team submitting to another. Although, frankly, Jeff, I wasn't, I wasn't involved in the nuts and bolts of that negotiation. What I saw and heard as I met with them individually, as the chair throughout the process, is that there, there, uh, there was give and take consistently across the plans.
0: So, why did it take until the eleventh hour to reach a, a consensus, and then not able to meet the deadline?
2: They ran out of time, and that is absolutely true. Um, From my point of view, um, they ran out of time, and uh, I wish – I'm disappointed in that, and I wish that they had had come to agreement earlier.
0: I know you had said you're not really in the room for the nuts and bolts, nitty-gritty of the negotiations, but – uh, when anything comes down to the eleventh hour, there seems to be one or two sticking points. What were those?
2: I think there were there was a lot of give and take over time. I, I am sure over time there were many sticking points, um, and so you know, I I I, I am not I, I'm not in a position to 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 nail down for you what were the last agreements that they made, and I, because I don't know that, um, keep in mind, Jeff, that I was facilitating the meeting, the public meeting, and working hard. To, um, to encourage them to come onto camera every half hour. And so um, I, I was engaged in that and, and the details of their um, discussions, I can't tell you.
0: So what's the next step?
2: Well, um, in uh, missing the statutory deadline, um, the Supreme Court now has the authority to draw the maps. Um, My staff, that is the independent nonpartisan staff, continues to draw up the details of the plan, all of which we will submit uh, to the Supreme Court. I am very hopeful that they will take uh, the work that we've done under consideration, especially because of the amount of public engagement that went into it. We had the most public engagement of any commission ever. We had 400 individuals, at least 400 individuals who testified in public meetings. We had 17 public outreach meetings. Um, We had more than 2,700 comments on draft maps, more than 3,000 emails, a huge amount of input. All of that input is so important and valuable. And of course, reflecting that in the complexity of maps, is challenging, incredibly challenging. And so um, I am hopeful that the Supreme Court will acknowledge that, including tribal consultation. We consulted with eight tribes and all of their interest needs are reflected in that final plan. And my hope is that the Supreme Court will take that into consideration as they're moving through their process.
0: But bottom line, at this point, the Supreme Court could do whatever it wants, correct? That's right. Anything else that you want to add or you want to tell the public about how this process unfolded over the last several months and perhaps why they didn't reach a consensus within the statutory deadline?
2: I am proud of the negotiation that the, the voting um, commissioners engaged in. Um, I know that it's a challenging, complex process and that the fact that they formed and relationship with each other and were able to work through the nitty gritty, um, I'm proud of that. Um, I I believe that um, another another feature in this commission is that every member of this commission has a full-time job, including myself. That's also the first time a redistricting commission has had that kind of uh, composition um, and I am proud of that. I'm proud of being a citizen volunteer in this position. Um, and uh, I would also say that the census data was that we were supposed to receive it in April and we got it in August. And um, you know, we had a very compressed timeline, and I am proud and remain proud that w- that the commission arrived at consensus. So we, while we while we did not, reach our statutory deadline, we did not fail. We completed the task, and I'm proud of that.
0: All right, Sarah Augustine, the chair of the Washington Redistricting Commission, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you. Appreciate the time, Jeff.
0: We have to take a quick break, but we'll have more of the Como Politicast in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogola. Well, President Biden gets no bump for the BIF. The bipartisan infrastructure bill and the passage of it has not had any positive effect on his approval ratings. In fact, he's now hovering in Trump territory. Joining me now is Dan Balls. He's the chief correspondent for The Washington Post. He's been covering Washington for many decades. And where did Biden's numbers stand right now? Are they uh, pretty bad?
3: Well, they're not very good. I'll say that they are at the lowest point that uh, we have had him in uh, a Washington Post ABC News poll. Uh, we have him at forty-one uh, percent uh, approval, which has uh, been ticking down. It's not significantly different than it was, um, you know, two months ago, but it's notably down since the summer. And uh, you know, when he was around fifty percent, or when it was a little above that, in the early stages of his presidency, so he's been on a downward trajectory and, and, as you noted the, the passage at least of the bipartisan infrastructure bill did not have much of immediate effect. We were in the field doing polling uh, just after it had passed, so there was no immediate uptick. <laughs>
0: Now, there's been a lot of debate over what's in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, a lot of uh, false narratives coming out, particularly from the Republican side and from uh, the former President Trump himself. Now, this is something that is expected to uh, help every state in the union. It's very, very expensive. But you'd think that if something is going to give a boost to the president, it would be fixing roads and bridges. Why, why do we think that it's not really helping him out at all here?
3: Well, it may be too early to know that. I think that for one reason, you know, his his signature is just barely on the bill. And I think that it's going to take some time for people to actually see these projects get underway. Um, you know, it, it will take time for the money to get distributed. It will take time to identify the projects, although I think they've identified a lot of the likely ones. But um, it, it could be months before People in their communities be- begin to see work going on. And then I think at that point, it's the White House's hope uh, that as people begin to see that and feel that, it will, it will
0: seem more real. So we, we kind of mentioned this off the top of uh, President Biden now in Donald Trump territory for, for his approval ratings. And, and we looked at the Donald Trump administration and, and his ratings, uh, approval ratings, disapproval ratings, all kind of hovered in this very narrow margin. There wasn't a, a really a, a whole lot of... Uh, Variants to it, not a lot of ups and downs now we sort of see the same thing with uh, Biden the biden administration is Is this sort of a testament to just how polarized the country is to
3: some extent, I think that 's right uh, certainly president trump 's approval and disapproval numbers um, moved in the narrowest range that we have seen of any modern president. Uh, most presidents have you know good periods and bad periods, and their numbers go down and then they come back up or they go down. Um, I, I think it's too early again to know about Biden certainly given the, the degree of uh, polarization that we have in this country uh, it's not going to be easy for him to get you know, well above 50 um, but I think that the hope of, of him and fellow Democrats is that he's closer to 50 um, as we get into the, the midterm election year and closer to next November rather than this November Um, because if he is anywhere near where he is today, then the Democrats are in for a pretty bad midterm election.
0: Well, that kind of was leading me to my next question. You know, it's never a good thing when you're underwater, especially heading into the midterms. But in the midterms, you you see the party out of power typically uh, gain some seats in the House. And and are we expecting uh, that to be happening next year?
3: We do expect that to happen. Now, interestingly, normally when... uh, uh, party wins the White House, as the Democrats did with President Biden last November, they generally pick up some House seats along the way. And in fact, the opposite happened. The Biden was able to defeat President Trump, uh, but he did not have coattails. And so as a result, it was the Republicans who actually gained some seats in the House. Um, but that puts them very close to a majority. They don't have to turn many, very many seats in order to be in the majority uh, in 2020. Uh, 3. So the, the expectation is that, that that Democrats will probably lose their majority in the House. And I think the other question right now is whether the Senate will go in the same direction. As everybody knows, it's a 50-50 Senate at this point. Um, and if the Democrats were to lose both of those, I mean, it would be a terribly damaging blow to the Biden presidency.
0: But the Senate, though, just by the nature of who's up for re-election, it just seems like the Democrats have more of an advantage there, don't they? They do have
3: a little bit more of an advantage, um, but um, and they got some good news recently when uh, Governor Sununu in New Hampshire, the Republican governor who had been heavily recruited to take on Senator uh, Maggie Hassan, decided not to run for the Senate. That was a blow. That means they don't have at this point a particularly strong candidates. So um, there's some sorting out that's going on. How strong will some of the Republican contenders be who are going after Democratic seats and vice versa? Um, but uh, so I think that's why people are a little bit uh, less firm in their view of what's going to happen in the Senate. I think that at this point there seems to be a kind of a conventional wisdom that the House will flip. So it's this is the challenge that the Democrats have uh, to see if there's any way uh, that they can they can protect that majority.
0: Turning back to the poll, why do you think that it is now that people are kind of shifting their opinions on, on President Biden? Usually presidents get a little bit more of a, a honeymoon period, don't they?
3: They do, although again we're in such a, a, a time in our politics that um, those in the opposition firm up their opinions about the president very, very quickly, and so uh, the, the the length of the honeymoon today is almost non-existent. Um, I, I think several things have happened. Um, one, we began to see these uh, approval ratings of the president go down uh, markedly uh, in the aftermath of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, interestingly, a majority of Americans favored uh, the U.S. getting out of that conflict, that 20-year conflict. Uh, but nonetheless, the way it happened, Uh, unsettled people, and it raised questions about the competence of the Biden administration and and of the president. And that was one of the selling points that he had used in the campaign, that that if he were elected president, he would bring competence to the office. Uh, And one of the things we noticed in the poll this time is that the decline in his approval ratings uh, is much more because there has been uh, a decline among Democrats and independents. Uh, Republicans were uniformly against him um in the recent polls that we've done their their perceptions of him or assessments of him have not really changed but it's among democrats and independents that he's lost some ground now it may be that he'll be able to to get that back if the you know if the bigger bill eventually gets passed and everybody's satisfied with it but right now that's another factor that he's dealing with and then obviously uh, the economic news um w- which has been mixed um you know, good jobs report last month and a decline in um, unemployment, but uh, we're at a three decade high in inflation. And in our poll, 70% of the uh, people, uh, of adults said that the economy was not in good shape, either, you know, either uh, not so good or poor. And the, that number has gone up almost 30 points. So that's another indication. And that tends to drag down a president as well.
0: Have you seen these numbers, these types of numbers, this early in a presidency before? No,
3: it's rare. Uh, Bill Clinton, in the very early stage of his presidency, took a tumble. They had a they had a bad opening few months, but he recovered relatively quickly. So uh, Biden is in Biden. Other than and obviously, Trump started at a very low point and never really rose above that, except you know a couple of times, quite momentarily. So President Biden is in a in a much more uh, difficult position this early in his presidency than have his predecessors been. And and again, I think we're you know we're all you know waiting and watching and wondering whether um, even if these all of these bills get passed, and I think there is an assumption that ultimately they will, but it's not clear when. Um, but presuming those get passed and people begin to see some action, will that material effect, his approval rating, or has there been kind of, um, you know, residual damage to him that will make it much more difficult for him to get back to where he was
0: early in his presidency? All right, Dan Balls, chief correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. We have to take another quick commercial break, but we'll have more of the Como Politicast in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Finally this week, I'm joined by ABC News political director Rick Klein. We saw the bipartisan infrastructure bill get passed, yeah. and now we see the Build Back Better plan passed by the House. You think it has any chance in the Senate? I, realistically, no.
4: I'm not, not as it's currently written. I mean, it's a big achievement for the House, but... Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, the two senators whose names everyone has probably gotten um, sick of hearing already, are are where they've always been, which is to say they're not on board for this House compromise. They're going to want to have changes. They're going to want to bring down some elements of it. They're going to exert their power in a 50-50 Senate. That's not going to uh, be—we haven't heard the last of them, and I think getting it through the Senate is going to be a monumental challenge. Uh, Some of it is already taken care of. I mean, it's not like House members were unaware of the concerns that that senators had, but you're still going to have— Uh, additional changes. And as difficult as the process was, and as time-consuming process was in in the House, I don't see an easy finish line in in the Senate. But it's a big day for Biden and and for Democrats. I mean, they they delivered on a a very big package. They got it through a closely divided House and uh, you know they can, they can see the finish line it just may be off there a little
0: bit and we haven't really seen a filibuster in the house before we saw that with <laughs> yeah, Kevin McCarthy yeah I McCurley. mean there's no such thing really <laughs>
4: so we see Kevin McCarthy do the closest thing which is a member of leadership you can speak as long as you want um, and he took advantage of that and spoke all night and I and, and, um, didn't change any minds I'm sure and he you know, he made the point that he wanted to make, and you know, and then a lot of Democrats viewed this vote, frankly, with as much glee as Republicans, because Republicans see it as um, as Democrats going too far, and it's going to it's going to you know hurt uh, hurt their political prospects and for a bill that may not become law. So, you know, it's a stark example of where the partisanship is that both sides can be happy with a vote that went um, in one particular direction.
0: And we'll have to leave it there. Rick Klein, ABC News political director. Thank you so much. That'll do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. My thanks to my guests this week, including outgoing Secretary of State Kim Wyman, Dan Balls of the Washington Post, Sarah Augustine, the chair of the Washington Redistricting Commission, and, of course, you just heard Rick Klein, political director for ABC News. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. Just tell a friend. It really helps other people discover the program. And for all of our other podcasts, just go to newscom slash podcast. You'll find... Our hourly news updates plus LifeBeat with Marina Rockinger and many more right there or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pojolet. Thank you for listening and have a good week.